Good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jared Lawson. Let me pray for us and we will jump into the modern missions movement. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for another opportunity to learn about history, the different ways in which you preserved your church, the different ways in which you stirred people in the church to go and take the gospel to people who didn't know Christ. And so we pray as we look at these uh, lives, this movement, that we would be similarly stirred to have our eyes set on your eternal kingdom, uh, those who don't know you, that we might pray a bit more for missions. We might perhaps even go on missions, but we love you. We pray that you would uh, stamp the great commission on our hearts this morning uh, and just give us clarity. We love you and pray in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so we are continuing our church history uh, year, I guess. Uh, we're getting closer and closer and closer to present day. And so we've looked at Puritans. We've looked at the Great Awakening. We looked uh, at uh, liberal theology last week uh, with Zachary. And then today we're going to look at the modern missions movement, this massive movement, uh, missionary movement in the 19th century that seemingly comes out of nowhere uh, and reaches most of the unreached places in the world or, or, or what we were aware of at the time as unreached places. And, and what we're going to do, kind of the overview of our time, is we're going to look specifically at four guys. This, this movement wasn't through one denomination. It was kind of happening all over the place. Uh, so we're going to look at it through the lens of these four kind of uh, biographies, if you will. We could give a whole talk on each of these men uh, and several more that we won't even have time to cover, uh, but we won't be able to uh, cover all them. I, when we were planning the church history theological equipping classes, I wanted it to be like three years. Uh, then we could have done a whole William Carey lesson, but I got outvoted. So if you don't like history... You're lucky that Zach and Jeff said, nope, we're going to do a year. But uh, a quick uh, preliminary uh, clarifier before we begin. There's this understanding with Protestants, uh, typically, that Paul and the early church went and evangelized. Right? We have the book of Acts. We see the gospel spreading. And then all the apostles died. And then nothing happened for 1,700 years. And then Protestants showed up. And we saved the world, right? William Carey was literally the first missionary uh, to, to sail to India and take the gospel to somewhere that wasn't Europe or America. And, you know, you're welcome. That's what we kind of think typically. That is not the case uh, at all. Uh, the church, uh, by the 6th century, had basically reached all of the known world, all of Europe, seemingly, uh, Africa. In fact, the kind of brain of the Western church was North Africa, Tertullian, Athanasius, Augustine. All these men are all African, are all in North Africa. The church uh, reached Asia, Syria, and maybe India. So the early church is doing missions like crazy. They're spreading all over the world. Uh, the scriptures show us that Paul goes west, but we know just from church history, the church probably went east as well. And then in the 7th century, Islam shows up. And Islam kind of redraws the map. All of North Africa, all of the Christianity in North Africa is effectively wiped out uh, and becomes uh, strong, strong, uh, the strongest Muslim presence uh, in the world besides the Middle East. And so Muslims uh, kind of redraw the map after the rise of Islam in the 7th century. And you have Christianity that is kind of pushed into Europe where it will stay. And we have the Middle Ages and then eventually the Reformation. But the modern missions movement, what we're going to look at today, is the first Protestant massive missionary movement. It is the first Protestant missionary movement. So let's look at the kind of the background. First of all, in the Reformation, in the Protestant Reformation, what is the focus of the church? 
What is the focus of Martin Luther and John Calvin and all the big reformers? It's theological, right? They're showing why the Catholics are wrong and why they are right, how they're recovering the biblical idea of justification by faith and things like that. They're focused on theology and they're focused on organizing, Right? If there's a whole bunch of people who have been, if every Christian in the world is Catholic, and then you have all these reformers popping up, separating from the Catholic Church, uh, you have to focus a little bit on organizing, on getting your ducks in a row and things like that. So missions kind of falls by the wayside. Uh, or you don't have really enough time, you're so focused on theology and organization, you don't have enough time to gather some missionaries to go and spread. So that's the focus uh, of Protestants, early Protestants in the Reformation era. But the Catholics, the Catholic Church, during their counter-Reformation, right around that same time, does send missionaries all over the world, particularly through a group called the Jesuits. Uh, they go to Africa. They go to South uh, America. That's why so much of South America is still very, very Catholic. They go to Japan. They go to Indonesia. They go all over. So you do have Catholics uh, in the Reformation era going uh, on missions. And then the Puritans and the Pilgrims are kind of the first to sail away from Europe to the Americas. But what's their motivation? Is it, oh, there's people in America who don't know the gospel. Let's go evangelize to them. No, it's I'm being persecuted by the Church of England. I want to get away from here and go to this wonderful new land called America, right? It's very still uh, internally focused. Again, not, not really outwardly focused on missions. And then in the 18th and 19th century, the background of what we're going to talk about today, this is a time when there's just kind of this general kind of lethargic attitude towards missions in the church. Uh, there's also an understanding that the Great Commission has already been fulfilled. Paul mentions uh, in Colossians 1 that the gospel has been preached all over the earth. And so people would read that and say, oh, good, okay, Matthew 28, Great Commission, go make disciples of all nations, done. Paul did it. I don't have to do it. It doesn't apply to us today. That is a pretty universal attitude. And then uh, lastly, there's this idea of hyper-Calvinism, if you've ever heard that term. It's this idea of if God saves the elect, he doesn't need us, right? He's already elected those whom he is going to save, and therefore he doesn't need man. He doesn't need people to do it, right? He's God, we're not. He's going to save who he wants to save. So missions aren't really necessary. That was the strong attitude of many of the leaders in uh, uh, Baptist denominations and things like that during this time. And I have a quote here from a church historian, uh, Stephen Neal. The cool, rational 18th century which ended with William Carey's departure for India, was hardly a promising seedbed for Christian growth. But out of it came a greater outburst of Christian missionary enterprise than had been seen in all the centuries before. Maybe a little bit of an overstatement, but not by much. So the, the, the context that William Carey, the guy who's going to be the, the morning star of modern missions that we'll look at in just a second, the day in which he's living is not one that looks like there's about to be one of the greatest missionary movements in history. In fact, it looks like the opposite. It looks like nobody wants to go. They have theological reasons for why they don't want to go. Some uh, really bad, like uh, a misunderstanding of Calvinism. But that, that is the world that William Carey and these other guys are going to be born into and then we start to get, right before uh, actually William Carey is born, uh, some of the rumblings of the mission movements. Uh, the Great Awakening, which we looked at two or three weeks ago, is going to be a massive shift uh, with missions because it's going to shift the understanding of uh, we should convert the state first to salvation is something that happens in the heart of an individual. The early church 
would go and they'd go after the kings. They'd go after the emperors. Let's convert. I mean, Emperor Constantine gets converted and what happens instantly, right? Christianity explodes. And so that kind of became the missionary strategy. They didn't think, oh, if we convert the king, the nation is somehow Christian. But they thought the smartest thing to do is to convert the king, the leader. Let's make Christianity legal. Then we'll go in and we'll disciple everybody. And the Great Awakening is going to flip that. Uh, The state being Christian uh, doesn't really matter. It matters about individual conversion and the particular, so that, that's one big shift. And then another is uh, David Brainerd, who Jeff talked about a little bit, was a missionary during the Great Awakenings in America to the Native Americans. There was a small missionary movements during the first Great Awakening where uh, the people that were there, Jonathan Edwards, men like David Brainerd, would go uh, into uh, unexplored lands in America and minister to the Native Americans. And David Brainerd was a unknown, not very successful by numbers, a missionary who died at 29 of tuberculosis, and his life was marked by suffering. Uh, he struggled with, he had tuberculosis basically from 20 on to 29. He was alone in the cold, freezing New England woods. He would spit blood in the snow. He ministered uh, to Native Americans, often saw little fruit, and perhaps worst of all, constantly, constantly struggled with relentless depression, what he called melancholy. Uh, and so he converts maybe 100, 150 by the end of his life. But as he's alone, as, he, as he's doing these uh, missions throughout New England, he keeps a journal just for himself, prayers, journal. And towards the end of his life, he'll meet Jonathan Edwards. He'll actually die in Jonathan Edwards' home. And Edwards is going to take that journal and publish it called The Life and Diary of David Brainerd. It is the most successful book Edwards ever published And it uh, stirs this unbelievable passion for giving your life to God, giving your life over to missions. It's going to make its way uh, to England. People are going to read it. William Carey, everybody that we're going to look at today reads it. And it's the catalyst of why they want to go on missions. So they read it. They get this kind of missionary stirring in their heart. But unlike David Brainerd, they can't just look around and say, oh, there's heathens around us, right? David Brainerd and Jonathan Edward could say, where are non-Christians? Over there, right? Uh, across the street. But William Carey sitting in England, all of England is Christian, at least in name. Where does he have to go to find non-Christians? Out of his country. Right? India, right? The, not really across the street, but uh, you have to go, you have to literally move and sail somewhere else to find heathens. Uh, And so David Brainerd's Life and Diary, again, I wish we could give a whole talk on uh, David Brainerd alone. He's one of my uh, church history heroes, but his diary is going to stir their hearts towards missions. In fact, I was listening to a talk uh, by John Piper where he says, I'm tempted to speculate that the modern missionary movement would not have happened if not for the Life and Diary of David Brainerd, but uh, that's speculation. So that's what begins to kind of stir people's hearts towards missions, kind of awake them from this kind of cold hyper-Calvinism. We're unconcerned with the other nations who don't know God. God's going to elect and save whoever he wants anyway. And it starts with William Carey, that handsome man you see right there. Uh, William Carey, often called the morning star of modern missions or the father of modern missions. He was a commoner. He was a shoemaker uh, and became a Christian at 17 and pretty much instantly fell in love with the scriptures. Was self-taught, taught taught himself Greek and Hebrew just so he could know the scriptures better, right? That's love, 
I don't think any of you have done that. I certainly haven't done that. Uh, taught myself Greek and Hebrew. I've studied that, but I haven't taught myself it just so I can know the Bible better. And then secondly, he loved reading missionary, or, uh, journals of explorers like Captain James Cook. Uh, it said the World Atlas was his other Bible. He would be moved to tears just by reading it. He begins to get this uh, heart for these people in, in these far-off lands who have no knowledge of Jesus Christ, no understanding of the gospel because no one's ever told it to them. He starts to get this stirring, and then at 26, he becomes a pastor. He reads the life and diary of David Brainerd, and he becomes uh, consumed with this passion for missions, and almost nobody shares that passion. He is alone, virtually, in this understanding of the gospel needs to be taken to other nations. So he starts to try and change the minds of the the pastors around him in England. He writes an 87-page pamphlet. Again, titles back in this day were a bit rough. Let's read the full title. An inquiry into the obligations of Christians to use the means of conversion of the heathen which the, uh, in which the religious state of the different nations of the world, the success of former undertakings, and the uh, particularity of further undertakings are considered. Right, Rolls right off the tongue. He writes this to try and stir fellow pastors. The Great Commission still applies to us. The Great Commission still applies to us. This, by the way, was the first book published on a theology of missions. Now there are whole fields in every seminary on missiology, the theology of missions. So this is a groundbreaking work. Uh, And remember, people are apathetic towards missions in his day. Uh, They're hyper-Calvinists. And so as he goes around, he begins to preach, try and stir this uh, desire for missions. He's told by uh, an older minister, young man, sit down. You are a miserable enthusiast for asking such a question. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. Right? So you see that kind of understanding. Older statesman, older uh, minister telling this young, fiery 20-year-old, sit down, you're a miserable enthusiast, shut your mouth, God's going to do what he wants, he doesn't need you or me. And so there might be this temptation with us to think, or at least this is a a temptation uh, in in, uh, the church to think, See, this is what Calvinism produces. This high view of God's sovereignty makes man's responsibility mute, right? We don't need missions because God's going to save whoever he wants to save. There you go. There's the fruit of Calvinism. And if I can push back on that a little bit, uh, it is Calvinism. It is this high view of God's sovereignty that is going to lead William Carey. It's going to lead David Livingston. It's going to lead Henry Martin. It's going to lead Hudson Taylor. It's going to lead all of these men to worldwide missions. Almost everyone in the modern missions movement was a Calvinist. So this is an abuse that they're facing, and the the answer is it's swinging the pendulum to the other way. Okay, God must not be sovereign, and it's all up to us. Rather, it is a high view of God's sovereignty that fuels missions. Look at Acts 18. This is the eyes that Carrie has. What's Carrie's understanding of Calvinism? Acts 18, 9 through 10. And the Lord said to Paul one night, this is when Paul is in in Corinth, Uh, he's been beaten up quite a bit, which happens basically everywhere he goes, but he's been beaten up in Corinth. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one else will attack you or harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. You see that? Paul, don't leave Corinth. Why? I have many need to hear you open your mouth and preach the gospel. I have many in this city 
who are my people. Keep on preaching. That's the eyes of everyone that we'll look at today. There are many in India who are his people. There are many in Burma. There are many in China. There are many in Africa who are his people. And to quote uh, Romans 10, how then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? For it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The answer to the hyper-Calvinism incorrect view of God's sovereignty isn't swinging the pendulum. It is, he has many people in these areas and I must go and preach. How are they to believe the gospel if people aren't sent? And so this is Kerry's attitude. He's going to argue in this work, an inquiry into the conversion of, of the heathen that the Great Commission is for all Christians for all time, right? This is stuff that seems normal to us. Imagine a day where it's not normal. The Great Commission applies to the church always, right? We think that, okay, isn't that self-explanatory? No, not in Carrie's day. Therefore, it is the duty of the church to bring the message of salvation in Jesus Christ to the whole world. Carrie says this, Multitudes sit at ease and give themselves no concern for the greater part of their fellow sinners who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry. So it gives this great call trying to convince people the Great Commission applies to us. We must go. And then secondly, what he does in an inquiry is he gives uh, statistics, very shocking statistics. He's not just kind of rousing people towards missions. He's giving data of here's how many people are in India and here's how many are Christians, zero. Here's how many people are all over these uh, different places. So he gives data of basically the unreached world, and that does begin to uh, stir. He gets a little bit of momentum. He travels around again preaching, uh, trying to encourage pastors towards missions, and his famous phrase, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. That was his kind of summary statement. Expect great things from your God who is sovereign over all, who has many people in these lands, and therefore attempt great things for God. And he is ridiculed by many of the leaders in his denomination for this kind of uh, youthful passion as they saw it. But others, Andrew Fuller and some others, uh, joined him, and they formed, again, this, the very cleanly named, the Particular Baptist Society for Propagation of the Gospel Among the Heathens. Right, the, the first missionary society, first evangelical missionary society, uh, later remand, uh, renamed the Baptist Missionary Society. Right, we've gotten better at names since uh, Carrie and Andrew Fuller. Uh, and so, again, they, they, they want to organize, they want to take the gospel to the world. They set their sights on India first, uh, and Fuller reflecting on this day. They don't, they don't really know what they're doing. Again, they're, they're, they're my age, they're, they're upper 20s. Everyone older than them is saying, you're ridiculous, you're a young enthusiast, you don't know what you're talking about, you don't know theology, clearly you've misunderstood all these things. And so they don't really know what they're doing, but they are convinced they must take the gospel to the nations. Here's how Fuller describes it. Our undertaking to India uh, really appeared to me to be somewhat like a few men who were deliberating about the importance of penetrating a deep mine. We had no one to guide us. And while we were deliberating, Carrie said, well, I will go down if you will hold the rope. So William Carey becomes the first missionary. Andrew Fuller would spend his life in England preaching on missions, traveling around, trying to raise money. They had no money, something of the equivalent of $1,000 uh, to start with. And again, all the outside observers mocked them. But William Carey goes. On June 13th, 1793, William Carey, at the age of 33, sails to India for five months, 
Right? No, no quick airlines in that day. Sails for five months to India with his wife and his four kids and would never uh, return back to England. He would die in India. So he gets there. He begins learning the language quickly. He, had, he did have a real gift for language. He taught himself Greek and Hebrew again. That was, uh, he had a gift for these things. And in 18 months, he's able to preach in, in Bengali. Uh, he wants to evangelize. But more importantly, he wants to, or maybe not more importantly, as importantly, he wants to translate the Bible. Now, again, this maybe seems self-explanatory because this is common today. But in William Carey's day, the missionary strategy was you go, you make the people Western, you teach them English, and then you give them an English Bible, and boom, you've done uh, missions. Uh, that's why we hear so much about, you know, colonialization or whatever. That, that was the strategy. Go, make them English, teach them your language, give them your Bible. Carrie's going to flip that. I want to go. I want to learn their language. I want to give them the Bible in their own language. I have, a, I have a quote there I won't read, but he is convinced that for the evangelization of India to take place, they must have the Bible in their major languages. There are six major languages in particular. So he, again, this is a, this, we do that today. That's common today because of William Carey. He establishes that pattern. So he goes to India. He, he, he is a holistic ministry. He's not just doing spiritual things. He does education work. He uh, helps with medical care. He helps them improve their farming methods, things like that. And he, he really dives into social reform. I mean, it, it's India. He sees the caste system, and he says this, perhaps one of the strongest chains with which the devil has ever bound the children of men, the caste system. So he wants not just to make them Christian, but he wants to change. He wants a, a biblical worldview to change the way things operate there in any way that he possibly can. He says, I seek to endeavor by all possible methods to bring over a lost world to God. And he, like everyone that we will look at today, endured incredible, incredible difficulty in that effort. In the first year, one of his only missionary, and co uh, missionary colleagues, John Thomas, blows all of his money, goes into massive debt, and eventually deserts the mission. So again, imagine you just left with your family from your homeland to an unknown land. It's not like he could do a scouting trip like today where we fly over, we find a place to live, then we fly back, we pack all our stuff. No, he's just got his stuff and his family. They're sailing to India. He's got a couple partners. One of them immediately blows all their money and deserts him. His five-year-old son, Peter, would die in the first year of dysentery, and his wife, Dorothy, has a mental break, and she would consider, be considered insane for the rest of her life. She suffered delusions. She constantly uh, accused Carrie of having affairs. She would fall him out into the street, accusing him publicly of these things. Uh, she would attack him physically. She pulled knives on him several times. Uh, she eventually had to be uh, physically restrained. Uh, to a room. In fact, one of Carey's later missionary partners said, William Carey worked on Bible translations while an insane wife was in the next room, all in the first year. On top of that, they had virtually no money. He had to take a job as a manager of an indigo factory just to make ends meet, which brought tons of criticism from England, people who were already doubting him, saying, look, he's just over there trying to gain money. He's not even a missionary anymore. He struggled with constant illness, like all of them did, constant loneliness, and then perhaps the most uh, discouraging, seemingly uh, no fruit from his ministry for years and years and years and years. He wrote in a letter to his sister, no one expects me to write about experience, nor to say anything about the doctrine of the gospel, but news 
and continual accounts of marvelous things are expected from me. However, I have no news to send. And as everything here is the same, no marvels, at best we are expected to be uh, anything more than pioneers to prepare the way for those who coming after us may be more useful than we have been, right? So incredible discouragement, discouragement with his partners, his family, sickness, and then seemingly no fruit for years and years, but again, carries deep convictions that God has people in this land, does not allow him to quit. He wrote in his journal, when I first left England, my hope of the conversion of the heathen was very strong, but among many obstacles, it would utterly die away unless upheld by God. Yet this is our encouragement. The power of God is sufficient to accomplish everything that he has promised. And after, five, or after seven years, he sees his first converts, four Hindus, come to faith in Jesus Christ and they're baptized. And a missionary partner named William Ward says, uh, Brother Carey has waited till the hope of his own success has almost expired, and after all, but after all, God has done it with perfect ease. The door of faith is open to the Gentiles, and who shall shut it? In 30 years, he sees his first converts after seven years. 30 years after he arrived, they had baptized 1,407 people. That same year as his first convert, seven years later, he uh, publishes the first uh, edition of the New Testament in the, in the Bengali language. And again, remember his day. There's no computers. There's no typewriters. There's no libraries to go uh, get a little help from a dictionary or something like that. There's no internet. There's no Bible software to check your own translations on the Greek or the Hebrew. There's no pencils, at least as we know pencils. you got to find a bird and pluck a feather. I don't know how they did it back then. You, you write with feathers back then. And there's papers incredibly rare in his day. So this is an incredible thing that he's published uh, the New Testament in the Bengali language. 19 years after his arrival, uh, his missionary station grew remarkably. They're able to uh, have a printing shop to print Bibles, uh, print theological works, other Christian books, things like that. And over the next 28 years, Carey and his partners would translate the entire Bible into all six uh, uh, in, uh, Indian languages, all six, right? Not like here. You can come to America, translate the Bible into American, boom, you're good to go, right? We've only got one, basically. They've got six. You've got a lot of work to do. can't be super satisfied just with one. And so uh, he does that. Him and his partners translate the entire scriptures into all six major languages. They plant 11 Indian churches, train up 20 Indian pastors who take the gospel to their own people, and they begin to see success uh, with different areas of social reform. There was this horrible practice that he observed when he got there where a widow, uh, would, if her husband died, making her a widow, she would uh, burn herself alive on top of his funeral pyre. And this was a voluntary thing. So he asks about this, see why is this happening, and then begins to go to different government officials to stop this. And he writes several years later, on the 4th of this month, a relegation was passed by the governor general and the council to forbid the burning or the burying alive of Hindu wives with their husbands. This is a matter of utmost importance and calls for the loudest thanks. So even that, he's beginning to see a lot of social reform. He starts a college to train, uh, again, native people to go take the gospel to their own language. Again, this is revolutionary. It's not saying we need help from Westerners to make everyone Western, rather going and training up their own people to take the gospel. Again, this is now common in our day to do. That's a common strategy, but it's because of Kerry doing it while being mocked by everyone from home. And then finally, after 40 years in India at the age of 73, 
Carrie dies. He dies. He's a pastor. He was a teacher. He was a linguist, an agriculturalist, a botanist, a journalist, and a social activist. Very holistic ministry. And he flings open the door for the modern missionary movement. In fact, uh, one person I read said, William Carey was the man whom God used almost single-handedly to bring the Great Commission back to the forefront of the thinking of the church. And by the time of his death, 14 missionary societies had been established in England. The country that once mocked him for wanting to start one now became one of the greatest sending countries in the world, 14 by the time of his death, because he flung open the door to the modern missions movement. Again, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. That's William Carey. That's the morning star of modern missions. Next, a man who would follow soon after him. They knew each other well. Adoniram Judson, we have a, a, a boy in our church named after this man. He was an American, raised in a devout family home, but goes to college, meets an atheist named Jacob Eames, who convinces him of atheism, so he loses his faith. He goes to become a playwright in New York City, and one day, after kind of getting tired of of, uh, New York, is traveling one night, travels through a small village, spends the night at an inn, and as he's laying in bed, the man in the room next to him is dying, and is screaming out, is being tormented, uh, is just in incredible pain, And Judson uh, can't sleep, obviously. He's hearing this man's cries, and he begins to contemplate death. Remember, he's an atheist. Death is nothing. Life and death, nothing to an atheist. Uh, But he begins to contemplate death. Is this man prepared for death? Am I prepared for death? And then the next morning, the crying eventually stops. The next morning, he goes to the, the, the front desk clerk and asks about the man in the room next to him, and he simply hears the reply, he's dead. He is dead. Uh, and Judson says, do, we know, do you know who he was? And the reply is, he's a young man from a college in Providence. His name is Eames, Jacob Eames. Right, the very friend, the very atheist who had led uh, Judson away from the Lord. It floored him. He, uh, all of a sudden, rethinking every bit of his own life, and he writes this later. Lost in death, Jacob Eames was lost. Utterly, inequivocally lost. Lost to his friends, lost to the world, to the future. Lost as a puff of smoke is lost in the, in the infinity of air. If Eames' own views were true, neither his life nor his death had any meaning. But suppose Eames had been mistaken. Suppose the scriptures were literally true and a personal God real. For that hell would open up in a country inn and snatch Jacob Eames, my dearest friend and guide, from the next bed. This could not simply be a coincidence. So this incredible moment is going to lead to his eventual conversion. He feels a call to missions by Shocker, reading the life and diary of David Brainerd. He knew of Carey, had read Carey's work and inquiry. Uh, And he says this, the command of Christ to go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature was present in my mind with such clearness and power that I came to a full decision and through great difficulty appeared, and though great difficulty appeared in my mind, resolved to obey the command. Again, this great commission that was once thought fulfilled, unnecessary, might as well skip over it. Modern day Protestants is now viewed as a present command. Go, make disciples of all nations. And Judson says he's going to obey it, but before he goes, falls in love 
as many of us do, right, before a big missionary journey. Falls in love with a woman named Anne, wants to propose. She says, get my dad's permission. And so uh, Judson writes one of the most perhaps famous letters to her father asking for his daughter's hand. Imagine if you're a father in this room receiving this from a man wanting to marry your daughter. I have to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world whether you can consent to depart uh, to her departure and her subjection to hardships and sufferings in a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to uh, degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, and for the sake of the perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion, and for the glory of God, can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened with acclamations of praise which shall redound for her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. So the dad reads that. He says, yes. They're married, and two weeks later, sail for India. On their way there, uh, Judson, his wife, are Congregationalists. They believe uh, in infant baptism. They're not Baptists. He knows he's going to bump into William Carey. They're originally going to India, who is a Baptist. And he's like, okay, we're going to fight over this. I need, to, I need to beef up on my biblical arguments. So he opens his Bible. You know, again, they've got months and months and months to get there, so he's got plenty of time. And in the course of his study, uh, becomes convinced of believer's baptism, Becomes a Baptist, is baptized as soon as he gets to India, resigns his old uh, missionary post that sent him there, and starts the first Baptist Missionary Society in America, the American Baptist Foreign Mission Society, and he was the first American missionary sent uh, across uh, the sea to a, to a land that has not heard of the gospel or Jesus Christ. Uh, he gets there soon after he's forced out of India and wants to go to Burma, modern-day Myanmar wants to go to Burma. It was an incredibly, incredibly hostile place. They had a well-known tyrannical ruler. They were in the midst of war. There was no religious toleration whatsoever. Uh, Every missionary that had gone in there before had either died, uh, been killed, or left. And William Carey tells him, don't go there. Don't go there. You will die. Do not go to Burma. But, again, Judson knows that they're utterly unreached and he is convinced to go. So he and his wife go and go, and uh, they begin translating the Bible and preaching the gospel. Evangelization and Bible translation, again, he's very skilled with language as well. He thinks this is vital for the nation to come to know God than being able to read the scriptures in their own language. And similarly, again, like William Carey, goes through incredible, incredible suffering. Not long after he's there, Burma goes to war with England. Every Westerner is arrested. Uh, The Burmese government thinks that they're spies. And so Judson is arrested. He's in prison for two years and suffers all sorts of things. Fever, uh, malnutrition. They don't feed their prisoners. He's basically starving to death in extreme torture. They were forced to go on long marches. They called them death marches in the horrible, horrible heat Uh, If you can imagine, a heat worse than Texas. Burma has worse heat, uh, worse than Houston even. Uh, He's going on these uh, marches at nighttime. He has his feet bound, a bamboo pole 
put between uh, his bound feet and he's hoisted up where only his neck is resting on the ground, all the blood rushing to his head all night. Uh, almost all of his fellow prisoners die, and he would have almost certainly died if Anne, his wife, wouldn't have walked two miles while pregnant to beg the jailers for her to bring him food. Uh, and they, most of the time, allow her to. He's still very <laughs> malnourished, but he gets food from his wife. Again, she's pregnant, making this two-mile walk in the horrible heat every single day. She even gets him his pillow, uh, which had sewn into the inside his Burmese Bible so he can work uh, while in prison. Uh, and then eventually she has the baby, makes the two-mile walk with the baby. Uh, she is malnourished, so her milk dries up, and the jailers allow uh, Judson Adoniram to, to run throughout the streets with his infant and beg mothers uh, to nurse his baby. This is two years of this happening. He finally gets out, and soon after he gets out, uh, his wife Anne dies of smallpox, and six months later, their little girl dies as well. And this sends him into a horrible, horrible depression. He retreats into the jungle, builds a hut in this tiger-infested jungle. Most people think he's going to die. He digs his own grave and lays in it, spends hours contemplating his own death. He wrote, God to me is the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. And before we think he lost his salvation or something like that, remember, in the scriptures, person after person, it, it seems to be the norm of the people that God uses, whether it's the Apostle Paul or the psalmist, to go through incredible suffering for the sake of advancing the kingdom. Psalm 88, Zach preached on this this past summer. The Lord, or O oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have uh, caused my beloved and my friends to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Literally in the Hebrew, darkness is my only friend. And God put that in the Bible. He wants you to read it. That's how the psalm ends. There's no, but I will call upon the Lord and I'm great. You know, none of that. Psalm 88, the most depressing psalm in the Bible. And your God, sovereign over what goes in his scriptures, put that in there. Why? To show you sometimes people who serve him and go on these incredible missionary journeys or perhaps stay here at home and advance the kingdom in their uh, neighborhoods go through incredible, incredible suffering. Yet, God is there. And God preserves this psalmist just like he preserves Judson. And he slowly comes out of this spiritual darkness. And all of a sudden, after this, at these incredible depths, this dark night of the soul, comes the outpouring. God gives him incredible evangelistic success. He writes this, uh, The spirit of inquiry is spread everywhere through the whole length and breadth of the land. We have distributed nearly 10,000 tracts, giving uh, to none but those who ask. Uh, some come from two, three months' journey from the borders of Siam and China. Sir, we hear, this is them speaking to him, Sir, we hear that there is an eternal hell and we are afraid of it. Do give us the writing that tells us how to escape it. Others from the front, uh, frontiers of Cathay, a hundred miles north of Ava. Sir, we have seen a writing that tells us of an eternal God. And are you the man who gives away such writings? If so, Pray, give us one, for we want to know the truth before we die. Others from the interior of the country where the name of Jesus Christ is little known. Are you Jesus Christ's man? 
Give us a writing that tells us about Jesus Christ. He will lead hundreds and hundreds to saving faith in Jesus Christ. He plants churches. He establishes schools. He trains up preachers. He completes his translation of the Burmese Bible. He travels to America once, finding when he gets there that he's this celebrity uh, and encourages others to go on missions. Then there's a massive uh, movement of people joining the mission field from America as a result of him uh, coming and, and telling people of what God is doing in Burma, and he will die at the age of 61 of a horrible lung disease after 40 years in Burma, again, through extreme suffering, advancing the gospel. Uh, and I read in one article about this man, uh, the, the person writing it said, the verse that attaches to Judson's life better than any is John 12, 24 through 25, is Jesus speaking, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life will lose it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That's possibly the best description of this suffering servant uh, of Jesus Christ whose life was given and Hundreds and hundreds he saw, and today uh, there are millions. There were zero Christians in Burma that we know of when Judson arrives. Today, there is in Myanmar close to three million. And there are 4,000 Baptist churches. That's Judson's denomination. Again, a man who uh, gave his life so that those who didn't know Christ, no witness for the gospel, might have someone preaching. Jesus, are you the Jesus Christ man? Tell us. We want to escape this eternal hell. He's there. Now there's three million there in Myanmar, modern-day Burma. Next, David Livingston. We'll go a bit quicker with these last two. David Livingston, uh, this certainly would have been Zach's favorite missionary. He was uh, the most famous Uh, probably most famous missionary to the uh, continent of Africa. He was Scottish, very fiery, uh, studied medicine. Shocker, reads the life and diary of David Brainerd and says after reading it, in Christ's service I wish to live and in it I wish to die. He's not your normal missionary. Uh, He, again, doesn't just do spiritual things. He's a missionary, yes, but he's also a doctor. He's an abolitionist, and he's an explorer, which is what he's he's famous in kind of all circles, not just Christian. This is one quote. I feel like this would, Zach would fist pump at this kind of thing. Uh, I am not a dumpy sort of person with a Bible under his arm, but someone serving Christ when shooting a buffalo for my men, right? Uh, Or taking an observation, even if some will consider it not sufficiently or even call it missionary, Right? I'm serving Christ no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm preaching the gospel, killing a buffalo so that my men can eat, or exploring the inlands of Africa. He's a real man's man. Uh, But he goes to South Africa to be a medical missionary, gets sick of it really quickly, really wants to explore, and he particularly wants to explore inland. Uh, Africa at this time was called the Dark Continent. No uh, European knew what was happening there. It was also called the White Man's Graveyard. Uh, England uh, was, had a presence in South Africa, and so that was basically all they knew. That's where Livingston goes, and he wants to uh, create what he calls God's Highway. He wants to explore inland in Africa so that after him, as he kind of blazes this trail, creates God's highway, missionaries can flood in after him and can reach the continent of Africa. So he has this, this desire. He says, I shall open up a path to the interior of Africa or perish. Okay, so uh, side note. 
What's happening thus far in the missions movement is all the coastlands are being kind of evangelized, but very few are making it inland. So the coastlands of China are being reached, the coastlands of Africa, coastlands of India, and Livingston says, okay, let's go inland. Hudson Taylor will later, later follow in this kind of conviction to take the gospel into the country. And so Livingston, with this desire, goes on some of the most dangerous and uh, impressive explorations of the 19th century. He's the first European to travel the width of Africa. He's mauled by a lion on one of his uh, uh, explorations, lives, keeps going, Uh, discovers the beautiful Victoria Falls, which he names after his queen. There's a picture of it there. Uh, And as a result of his explorations, is becoming famous all across England, which he'll he'll later use to his benefit. Uh, He speaks, first of all, against the uh, actual racism in South Africa, where most of the uh, Englishmen living there and a lot of the missionaries there view uh, the Africans as a lesser class. He begins to speak against the white Afrikaans, and they burn down his house, burn down their whole missionary uh, station, and steal all his animals. So he pays for it, but he begins to speak against the the racism there. And then as he's exploring uh, the Zambezi River, he sees how that river is used by a lot of these Portuguese settlements as one of the primary uh, ways of, uh, of trading slaves, particularly uh, trading them to take to Brazil, to Cuba, and to the Americas. He was unaware of it. All of England was unaware of what was happening inland. And so he sees this and he wants he, to devote his life to exposing this, how horrible it is, and ending it. So he, he wants to wake up England, uh, he says... Uh, It has been my objective to bring before my countrymen and all others interested in the cause of humanity the misery entailed by the slave trade in the inland phases. And so he vividly, on his his journeys inland, on his explorations, will write uh, letters, write in his journal of the horrible uh, nature of the Africans' uh, inland slave trade, of the murder of Africans and things like that. Uh, And so it kind of gains a little steam, but not to his satisfaction so he comes up with this brilliant idea. Nobody knew uh, at that point, because Google Earth wasn't invented for a couple more years, uh, the sources of the Nile. Uh, they don't know, how, you know, the Nile, this great river, but no one knows the sources of the Nile. So David Livingston, again, the man's man, shooting buffalo and being mauled by lions, says, I will discover it. Everyone, hey, whole world, I will go discover the sources of the Nile. And the whole world says, that's awesome. We can't wait to watch you do it. And he, in the back of his mind, is thinking, great, this will gain everyone's attention. And as I go, I will expose uh, the slave trade. Everyone's looking at me, and then I will use it as a megaphone to point to the slave trade. Now, he says this, If the good Lord permits me to put a stop uh, to the enormous evils of the inland slave trade, I shall not grudge my hunger and toils. I shall bless his name with all my heart. The Nile sources are valuable to me only as a means uh, of enabling me to open my mouth with power among men. So there's his motivation. I don't really care about the sources of the Nile, but if it it gives my voice power among men, that's it. He says again, uh, it would be better to lessen this uh, great human woe than to discover the sources of the Nile. May heaven's rich blessings come down on everyone, America, American, English, or Turk, who helps me heal this open sore of the world. That's what he called it, this open sore of the world. And so he goes on this exploration. He gets lost uh, for nine years. No cell phones in those days. You can't just, there's no find my friend back then. So he gets lost. Nobody knows where he is. Uh, They eventually, a journalist from America decides, I'm going to go find him 
finds him, says the famous line, Mr. Livingston, I presume, uh, and David Livingston tells him of, again, the horrors of the slave trade. That Those letters, his descriptions are published, read throughout the world, and his great stunt works. It works. Uh, the, the head of the Geographical Society in England wrote this to him. We have learned with heartfelt, or you will learn with, with uh, heartfelt satisfaction that there is now a definite prospect of the infamous East African slave trade being suppressed. Uh, for this great end, it will be achieved. We shall, by, uh, we shall be mainly indebted to your recent letters, which have had a profound effect in the public mind of England and have thus stimulated the action of the government. So everyone reads his letters. The government eventually sends a blockade. Right? England, at this time, one of the most powerful nations in the world, stops it as a result of David Livingston's letters. So he's an abolitionist. He would also travel around and uh, promote missions. Again, you think of this man exploring Africa, Africa getting mauled by lions. You think, pretty difficult life. Uh, and he says in his address at Cambridge, trying to stir up missionaries, he says this, People talk of sacrifice I have made spending too much of my life in Africa. Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. To uh, say rather it is a privilege, anxiety, sickness, suffering, danger, now and then uh, with a foregoing of the common conven- with foregoing of the common conveniences and charities in this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I have never made a sacrifice. Who does that sound like? Who does that sound like if you've read Romans? It's almost a direct quote. For I can, That's right, Paul, there you go. Uh, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us, Romans 8, 18. That's Livingston's attitude. I've never made a sacrifice. This is but for a moment, but eternal glory waits on the other side of this suffering, these anxieties. He died. They found his body uh, in a mud hut. He was on his knees in prayer, they think. He was by his bed with his hands folded, uh, and his tombstone reads this. David Livingston, uh, a missionary, traveler, philanthropist, for 30 years his life was spent in an unwavering effort to evangelize the native races and to explore the undiscovered secrets and to abolish the slave trade, this open sore of the world. And the side of his tombstone has John 10, 16, For I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. When he arrived in Africa, again, it was considered the dark continent, but he brings light, at least to the European eyes, to this dark continent. He redrew most of the maps, uh, explored uh, countries that we know of today, South Africa, Rwanda, Angola, Republic of Congo, uh, places that we didn't know, it was, we didn't know existed, the dark continent. Uh, he, a month after his death, the Zanzibar slave market closes forever. A month after his death, uh, his numbers aren't really recorded as far as conversions like Kerry or Judson or church plants or anything like that. We don't know. But he does create God's highway, and thousands of missionaries will follow him. Around uh, 2012, again, what was once the dark continent when David Livingston was exploring it. Uh, as of 2012, a study says uh, around 63% of sub-Saharan Africa claims to be Christian. Again, a number that was zero before 
David Livingston blazes this trail through inland Africa. I've never made a sacrifice. This light momentary affliction, there's an eternal glory waiting for us on the other side of it. Lastly, Hudson Taylor, won't have time for questions, sorry. Uh, blame these guys for having you know, awesome lives. If their lives were boring, we would have gotten through this a lot faster. Hudson Taylor, getting toward the end of the modern missions movement, kind of transitioning out of it. He's kind of considered the last missionary of this kind of first wave. Uh, He similarly wants to go inland uh, in China, becomes a Christian at 17, wants to take the gospel to the unreached in China. He goes, the, the very famous story of he's preaching in his English clothes for 18 months. No one's listening to him. No one's even watching him preach. And then he decides to adopt Chinese dress, grow a ponytail like the Chinese men did. He wants to, again, uh, contextualize the gospel to the culture, and he begins to see fruit. Incredibly radical for Protestant missionaries in his day, but he does it, and again, that's the new, uh, that, that is the strategy nowadays, again, because of men like him and men like Kerry. He wants to go inland, like Livingston. The, the coast had been evangelized in China. He wants to go inland to evangelize all the, pro, uh, the provinces. He gets sick has to sail back to England, and that's when he decides he's going to found the China Inland Mission. He's very passionate about taking missionaries into China to preach the gospel in all the provinces. He recruits 24 missionaries, two for each province, which increases the number of missionaries in China by 25%. Okay, so in kind of one swoop, he ups them by a quarter, but they're not allowed to take salaries and they must uh, adopt Chinese dress. He says this, uh, China is not to be won for Christ by quiet, easy-loving men and women. The stamp of men and women we need is such that we'll put Jesus, China, and souls first and foremost in everything at every time, and life itself must be secondary. So he, he starts the China Inland Mission, takes 24 missionaries, grows it. Uh, in the next decade, he... Uh, in, 1881, prays that God would send him 70 missionaries. He gets 76, right? God gives him six extra. Uh, And then five years later, prays for God to send him 100 missionaries. Again, uh, there was about 100 when he started, 20 or 24 missionaries upped it by 25%. And so he gets 102 missionaries. So it's it's growing and growing. Missionaries are flooding uh, inland in China. And Carrie says, God's work done in God's way will never lack Supplies. He has this kind of life that's modeled by uh, faith and prayer and asking God to just do incredible things. He would sail back and forth from China to England ten times in his life, which is about six months each way, which in, ends up being about four to five years of his life spent on a boat. Okay, so not the best, even that part. Uh, but he did, uh, besides that, went through uh, incredible suffering as well. In one year, lost his son lost his wife, and then lost his newborn. In fact, four of his eight children will die before the age of 10. Uh, After establishing the China Inland Mission, uh, the Boxer Rebellion breaks out, uh, where all Christians and foreigners in China are targeted, and the China Inland Mission lost more than any other agency that was there. 58 adults were killed, 21 children were killed, and he also suffered from lifelong depression. But like all these other men, he continues to press on, says this. It is in the path of obedience and self-denying service that God reveals himself most intimately to his children. When it costs most, we find the greatest glory. We find the darkest hours, the brightest, the greatest loss, the highest gain. And while sorrow is short-lived and will soon pass away, the joy is far more exceeding and is 
eternal. That's his attitude as he's suffering all these horrible things. He presses on, the, missions, uh, the mission grows, and he dies at the age of 73 in uh, 1905. Uh, so at the time of his death, uh, the China Inland Mission had 825 missionaries living in all the provinces of China. There was 300 mission stations uh, established, more than 500 local Chinese partners, and 25,000 converts they saw by the time of his death. Today, uh, or when, at the time of his death, there's around, they, uh, we think, best estimates, 100,000 Christians in China today. About 150 years later, there is 150 million that we know of in China. Uh, as a result uh, of primarily Taylor's ministry and many that would follow him with uh, organizations like the China Inland Mission. He says this, All God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned God being with them. Man by his own power can do nothing, but if God has many people in these nations... Expect great things from him. Attempt great things for him. So, in summary, India, Burma, Africa, China, almost no Christians, about no Christians. And today, again, millions and millions and millions in each of them because of sacrifices like these four men. The modern missions movement was simply brought about by men and women who read the Great Commission, believed that it still applied for them today. And like Paul, they said, I do not count my life of any value nor is precious to myself only if I may finish the course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, Acts 20. Several other people that we could have talked about that we didn't have time to. Henry Martin went to Persia. Uh, John Ryland founded another missionary society. Anthony Groves went to Iraq and went to India. Robert Morrison was the first Protestant missionary to China. On and on we could go uh, with all of these uh, men all happening at the same time. Again, the missionary movement just exploding all over the world. And then uh, we have a second wave that happens throughout the 20th century, and then we are technically in the third wave, which most missiologists, most uh, books, at least that I had to read in seminary, uh, were basically saying, you want to go? You want to be William Carey? Guess what? Walk across the street because the nations have come to us. There's a mosque being built in uh, McKinney in Texas, right, in very Christian America. Right? I could drive to two Hindu temples within 10 minutes of here. The nations have flooded in. We live in a, the, the, they call them diaspora missions. Your street probably has people from dozens of different cultures alone. You don't have to sail to India or even fly there to reach the unreached or reach someone of a different culture. Just walk across the street. Knowing your God is sovereign, he has many people in this city, many people in other nations that haven't heard the gospel yet, many people maybe on your street that haven't heard the gospel yet. Know that he's sovereign, expect great things from him, and attempt great things for him. Even if that for you, if you're super introverted, and that uh, big attempt is just meeting someone new, sharing the gospel with someone that you've invited over for dinner uh, in your neighborhood or something like that. And know uh, the promise of Habakkuk 2 is true of us, that one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the promise that the scriptures give us. Our God is sovereign, and by his grace he uses us to do incredible things. So let's pray. Sorry we didn't have time for questions, and we will be dismissed after I pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that as we 
uh, hear these stories, it's, it almost seems otherworldly that someone would make a, such a sacrifice, someone would go through such incredible things as seeing a spouse die or a young child die or things like that, uh, or go through incredible physical suffering or mental suffering for the sake of the kingdom. But we see that you do incredible things through your work. Not perfect men, not perfect women, but uh, people who simply read the Great Commission and, and long to obey it. And I pray that we would be a church marked by that same obedience, whether it's walking across the street or going overseas. I pray that we would long uh, for people to know you, those who don't, that they would uh, taste and see that the Lord is good. They would experience the beauty of your son that you sent, that we might know you. We might be brought into the very family of God. I pray that that would be a, a, a stamp on our heart uh, and that Parkway would be a witness to McKinney, to Collin County uh, of uh, the beauty of knowing Christ. And we pray in his name uh, to that end. Amen.